And so what I encourage people to do who find themselves in that spot is to make the thing they want the world to pay them for and show the world that. And hopefully you'll find somebody out there who says, yeah, yeah, I want more of that. And then you start a new channel. And that is essentially what I do. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways, the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. I'm your host, Rob Goodman, and on today's show, we're talking to artist and writer Paul Madonna. Paul talks all about his new book, Close Enough for the Angels, the process that he's created of really combining writing and artwork to create a new form and new medium. We go all the way back to his days of making zines and spreading them all around the city his time at Carnegie Mellon, and his transition from thinking about a career as a fine artist to really letting cartooning and cartoonists kind of take hold of his imagination and bring him into the world as an artist as he's known today. There's tons of insights about Paul's process and learnings that he's had and about his career. I think you guys are going to learn a ton, not only about Paul and how he came to create All Over Coffee, his incredibly popular column at San Francisco Chronicle, But you're also going to hear insights that I think are going to help you in your career path, whether you're an artist or in any kind of creative profession. So let's get started with my conversation with Paul Madonna. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to meet you. So tell me a little bit about what you're working on these days. And I want to hear about the new book that, uh, that I just picked up down in the mission. Well, I define myself as an artist and a writer. And it's those two fundamental practices that define everything I do. Uh, In whatever project, I'm using images and story in some way, whether that's, you know, a, a lot of drawings and one word or thousands of words in one drawing. And, um, the, the back and forth to me is what's interesting, how I can push and pull those two mediums together. And sometimes that results in a a piece of art in in a frame on the wall in a gallery or a museum. Sometimes it results in a book. And so the new book, Close Enough for the Angels, Mm -hmm. that's, there's a lot of writing there and it's a, it's a novel. It's an illustrated novel. Illustrated novel. So how did that come together? I know it was released and now it's got more of a wide release Right. We did a limited edition release at a gallery about a year and a half ago. And that's because it's an odd project, but I very much wrote it to reach a large audience. My series All Over Coffee, which ran in the Chronicle for 12 years, uh, had a a big audience. And and almost to my surprise, because I thought it was a very sort of niche and abstract type of, of project. And it had initially been just an experiment on my part because that's what I'm consistently doing is sort of playing with different, you know, combining drawings or just images and words in various ways. And um, I've, you know, I'm of course pleased that it took off the way it did, but I also felt that it had a limited audience because of its niche nature. But at the same time, I was surprised at how large of an audience that it gained. And I thought, well, you know, if I choose to speak to a larger audience, use a more, uh, um, traditional, for lack of a better word, uh, format and approach, then I can reach more people and still you with the sensibilities 
that that I've developed. I see angels as sort of an extreme on one end, whereas Oliver Coffee was an extreme in the other. So let's look at uh, in terms of time. You know, I published over 750 pieces in 12 years for Oliver Coffee. Yeah. In the first two years, I was four days a week. I did another six months of three days a week. In that time, I produced almost 300 pieces, published pieces wow. in two and a half years. I called it Art and Boot Camp. <laughs> yeah. It taught me a great deal about editing. It taught me a great deal about trusting my instincts and then also being able to look back and assess how I made my decisions and then adjust going into the future. So uh, in the very sort of uh, pragmatic sense, it was very educational. So let's take that to a six-year novel that is 110,000 words and over 100 drawings that while I gave it to people along the way and worked with editors, for the most part, it was created in a very uh, controlled environment. And now now I'm releasing it to the public all at once. Those are total extremes. And so in my mind, I think, great, I did the one. I did all the way over here on the right. I can do all the way over here on the left. Now I get to play in the middle. Right. Oh, how how long do I want the next project to be, both in terms of time, length? And and it's sort of, if you can stretch yourself, if you can set your two points as far as part as possible, then you have a lot more room in which to play in the middle. Yeah, I love that. And also, the medium that you're releasing it in is going to solicit different kinds of feedback. The kind of construct of how you're presenting the art is going to get people to think about it, process it, and give feedback in kind of very different ways than kind of these high-frequency drawings and writings that you did for all over coffee. So I, I love that, and I love having kind of the space between to kind of sort out what does all this mean for for my work. And- yeah. And how I approach things and, and what tools do I want to use? And, and that's, you know, we're, we're talking in the conceptual level in the sort of creative process level. And that's, that's something that I, I don't know that people know about me unless they engage with me because, um, the, the outward product of what I make is very, you know, i make representational drawings. They, they are well rendered, you know, I'm writing stories, which has the, the craft of storytelling, you know, I'm using, uh, I'm not just doing process work. So, uh, but behind it all, it all begins in a very process oriented way. Now, I do want to talk about context for a second of there's also, you, you mentioned the perception of those different mediums. Yeah. And the way that people perceive the the man who wrote and drew for the newspaper versus making books yeah. it was a very interesting experience for me because for one, I, I never worked for the Chronicle. The Chronicle licensed work for me. So I right. was always working on my own. And at least the first six months, there was this sense of you can literally be out any day. We can just call you tomorrow and say it's done. Right. Because they were just testing the waters with this new, new thing. So, you know, I was giving every ounce of energy to it because if it failed, I wanted it to be because it wasn't working for the public, not because I didn't give enough. Right. But um, I got so much immediate feedback. I mean, emails every day for years. And that sort of back and forth, it didn't change. I didn't start making the work based on what people wanted, but that feedback was just an amazing conversation to have. And, and, and just to hear their responses and also to hear how their responses changed over time. Sure. Once they got used to what this thing was, what it meant and and the voice behind it. I'm sure at first, um, because for people outside of San Francisco, Oliver Coffee was published by San Francisco Chronicle and it was on SF gate and you know, people will be able to check out the the notes and links and 
and and see your work, but there's a real um, there's philosophy there, there's humor, there's observation, and it was something like it never had been published before. Exactly, for sure. So I'll give you a brief like overall arc of what happened. So it launches, and there are tons of people who love it, and tons of people who are just like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> and um, the Chronicle did an interesting thing. They said, "Listen, we need to publish the negative letters." Because people write when they're upset. Right. And if we don't give them voice, they're just going to keep amping it up until we finally publish something. And they're like, but watch what happens. They were very astute about this. And I did watch. And so they would publish these angry letters. <laughs> and what it would do is it would provoke the people who loved the work. To speak it made up. them angry. Oh, okay. So then they wrote angry letters about the angry letters about how much <laughs> they loved it. And I kind of was just on the sidelines watching this thing go on in right. for months and months. It's a tennis match. But then like six months later, I started getting emails from the people who were confused in the beginning who said, you know, I was walking down the street the other day and I looked up and saw the light hit the corner of a building a certain way. And I thought of one of your pieces and I suddenly understood it. <laughs> and, um, and it was a really beautiful experience for me because I was like, yeah, they found where it fit into their lives. Right. And I sort of gave them, I showed it to them. They were like, I don't know what I'm looking at. But then later they found it out in the world. And, and that told me that as a creative person, I was actually echoing a true human experience, which is something that, that I think is what touches me deeply about the art and music and film, whatever, that, any artistic creation that I like. So now we fast forward to say two years. After two years, it was, it was, yeah. I get it. Of course. It's all over coffee. Like all the people were sort of on board now. Come five years, it was like an institution. Like, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Right. And now there's no question. People are still are buying both books. The first book collection, which is 10 years old now. Yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, I love this book. I give it to people all the time as if it's this thing that just always existed. And it, and it, it's, it taught me about what it is to introduce something new right. into the cultural ecosystem. Yes. And that you, if you're too far out, then it may never connect. But if you're just far enough out, it'll be just different enough to surprise, get attention, and then eventually be adopted. So let's talk about the 10 years before All Over right. Coffee. Right. And because, you know, look, now you have wonderful success in books, in art, in writing, in fine art world and commercial world, those 10 years where you're before all, all of this happened and all over coffee, where you're, you know, working these day jobs and you're trying to keep them kind of less creative so you can just keep your creativity pure and you're just hitting the, the grindstone and you're pumping out work and zines and comics and just hustling all over town. What was that time like for you? And more specifically, how did you keep your motivation so, you know, I get out of college and I asked myself, how do I make a living doing my own work? And the answer I came up with was twofold. The first is for people to want to give me money, which is essentially what it means to make a living, right? Right. For people to want to give me money, they have to know my work. I'm giving them away for free. Totally. So I would put either my mailing address or in time when email became more uh, ubiquitous, I would put my email and, uh, and everywhere I went, in cafes, restaurants, bars, post office, bookstores, I would leave copies of, of my zines. And in time, people began to write to me. And everywhere I went, I just had a stack on me. And I figured out my, my rhythm. I would, about every three to four months, I would produce an issue. 
And that is just how it developed. It was sort yeah. of me watching my own process. You know, the first month or so was all writing, just taking notes, figuring out what the themes were, what I was going. And then I'd begin drawing and then, you know, for maybe a month, a month. And then a month after that, I was assembling and editing. And then I'd put the book together and then start the process all over again. And uh, in that got me, I don't want to say it got me known in the sense that it, I was huge, uh, but it was enough that I started getting offered cafe shows or I met strangers, let's say. And I yeah. think that that is sort of the key. People were responding to the work and it it showed me what was working and what wasn't. And um, I, after a handful of years, I gave that up because I, I was doing autobiographical work at that time. Okay. And the decision that I came to, I think, is one that uh, lots of people come to in their mid-20s, which is, oh, wait a minute, the world is doesn't revolve around me. <laughs> and frankly, my stories are really, you know, my suffering isn't even suffering with a lowercase s. Right. It just isn't even suffering. You know, I, and that's, you know, that's the coming to, uh, that's maturation. Yeah. And was the motivation part, did that come through, well, you were out there, I know that one of those strangers who reached out to you uh, eventually became your wife. Exactly. Yeah. So that's certainly like, okay, this is connecting me with the, the right people. Right, right. I that's might not a have made a living yeah. from, from that work, but I met my life partner and, you know, that's certainly invaluable. That's that's incredible. It's amazing. And uh, and I love that. And you said, well, you started to have coffee uh, shop shows and cafe yeah. shows and started and, to get And known. small galleries, like local gallery shows. Yeah. And yeah. so is that what kind of kept you going? Oh, right. So thank you for bringing it back. Yeah. Motivation comes from within. <laughs> the uh, You know, I, I have my, my serious responses and I have my joke <laughs> responses. The joke response is that I hated ev- doing everything else so much <laughs> that it was worse than the struggle of doing it on my own. But I am I am a driven person and I really, I do have a big picture. I've always had a big picture view in terms of my professional life. It's the one thing that has always been clear to me of, of I have a sense of my arc and I don't know what the milestones are. It's impossible to know until you, you know, get traction and learn. But um, the dedication to it has never really been an issue to me. So when my back was against the wall for years, it was, well, I have two options, stop or keep going. And if I stop, well, then this is where I stay in regard to that. And well, no way. That's, that's utter despair to stop here. And I can't go on with my life. Not, I'm not saying that it was, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, nothing to worry about in that regard. What I mean is that, you know, for my own personal joy of of being a living human being, there was no choice. There was no choice. I just had to keep going until it happened. And um and you know, now that I'm on the other side of it, and I don't think anyone is ever 100% secure, uh you know, I I still wrestle with the same doubts or issues that that I've had my entire life with in terms of creative process or even personal process we just get more adept at dealing with them and we get more information about ourselves uh but now that I am on the other side of it it's really it makes total sense it's like yeah you just keep pushing and eventually you'll get there you just keep making mistakes keep trying things and the willingness to say that didn't work I'm going to try something else and it's not even the, it is the willingness, but it's also the desire. Like I, it, I truly don't mind when I try something. I'm like, oh, I mixed those two chemicals together and it just kind of went, right? Like, and then I mixed those two together and it sparkled and dazzled. Well, what did I do there? Let's try something again. Right. And it's that sort of 
again, one has to know themselves, their intent. Yeah. My intent isn't just the one or two or four objects you see that I've made. Um, it's the entire process that led to them being made. We were talking about this, and I, I want to get into the structure that you have as an artist and a creative person. So you talked about this drive, you know, that, that this stuff, the, there was no choice but to do this. But I want to hear about the kind of creative or, or kind of work life structure that you've built so that you can execute and you can you can get your work done. So talk to me a little bit about that, I guess, kind of the the practice and how you how you function to to produce so much well i treat it like a job uh, i treat it as responsibility and discipline all the things that i think are often uh not thought of as what an artist is supposed to be and, right um you know i uh, there's two things i want to talk about my family life like growing up but yeah. then there's also um, one of the things that i saw and continue to see is a lot of people who want to be artists I find uh, their motivations to be misplaced. Um, it's not to say that they don't have creative inclinations, but I've I've met people who what they think that it's a lifestyle, and it is a lifestyle. Like on on the outside, I get up and do whatever I want. From the outside point of view, I have all my time to structure. I travel. I you know, I, and it's like wow, look at all that freedom. But that freedom is because I have consciously used my free time in a way that has become productive. So I grew up, my parents were 19 and 20 when they had me. Wow. Uh, they were very young. They started their first business in their early twenties and they worked together for the next 10 to 15 years. And now they, they still work together. My parents are still together. Yeah. I grew up in their first business was a pizza shop. Then they owned another pizza shop. Then they owned a restaurant. Then they owned a bar. And all this was consecutively, not at the same, you know, yeah. not cumulatively. Where did you grow up? What? Uh, outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah. And uh, I think one of the things that they taught me, not by words, but by example, was that you didn't wait for permission. You got up and you went to work every day. You know, they could have gotten up some days and said, you know, we're, uh, we don't feel like it. We're not going to do it and not open the shop. Uh, I only recently learned a, a great story that, you know, they worked seven days a week, but they said on Sundays they would have a, uh, a number that they wanted to reach. This is the pizza shop really early on. Yeah. And so when we sold this number of pizzas, we'd call it a day. <laughs> and if it was in the afternoon, then we could go to the park. If it was in the evening, we could go to a movie. Right. And they let the uh, the goal dictate when they signed off. Now, we're they have no days off. This is And it's it's that work ethic that I think was instilled in me by just sheer experience. I grew up in an environment that functioned like that. I learned in art school, I realized that a lot of people didn't have this. And, um, and it's one it, of the things they don't really teach in art exactly. school. They don't teach any of the business, the structure. It's just, hey, you know, let's get better at the craft. And then you're released into the wild. And it's like, what, what do I do? Well, how do you prioritize? Sure. How do you say these are the expectations of the world, be it uh, money or social or fun, like Friday night? You know, what does a Friday night mean to a 25-year-old? Right. You know, it means something. But often on Friday nights, I would be in my studio. And again, it was about priorities, what mattered to me. And, and one has to be able to make those decisions. And I I believe that nothing is gained without sacrifice. And it's not like, oh, willing. I'm not talking religious. I'm not I'm saying like willingly giving things up. But one always has to make a choice. And, um, and it... I believe it's unfortunate, but it is true that some 
we never get something without giving something up. But what I think it does is it creates value. For example, you know, I, I occasionally take commercial work if they come to me and say, we love you, Paul Madonna, for what Paul Madonna does, because that's what I was talking about earlier. They like my point of view and they want me to execute something my way right. for their project. Great. I can work with somebody in that way. But if they want to come in and be like, mm, we want this and this, there are other people who do that really well. Yeah. I, I, that's not my forte. So my point is that I, I occasionally take work like that, but I've also turned down work like that when I've wanted to work on my own things. And um, I've turned down lucrative offers that were hard to turn down. But at the end of the day, I realized, oh, the value of what I want to do is actually greater than the value of what they're offering. Now I understand how much I can actually put a price now on how much of this means to me to spend the next two weeks editing my book rather than working on a project with them, even though it's a project I would do. And that is invaluable to be able to put that number on and say, wow, now I know what it's worth to me. Does that happen because you prioritize happiness, fulfillment over dollar signs or, or no, it happens because you prioritize the, the book over a, a corporate job. Like what kind of mindset do you think you apply there? See, that's where it gets back to the life's work thing. The over, what is it that I want the world to see from me next? Here's the thing. I, you know, I, I occasionally speak to schools and, and various age groups of students. And depending on who I'm talking to, I have, you know, different things I say, but, um, there, and often with professionals who are working young professionals, they take jobs just because they have an opportunity. Now, this isn't a criticism of it, but what one has to be aware of is that let's say you do something that you don't really love doing, but you can execute and you have an opportunity to do it. Well, that's what's going to be out in the, in the world with your name on it. Now, everybody who likes that and wants more of it is going to say, oh, you do that. Right. So they're going to call you up and they want you to do that again. Right. And you get pushed and pulled because down the path. Because you show them that. Right. You're like, I can do this. And then, and then you're going to, if you've already made the decision to take money for doing it that way, well, then you're probably going to say yes again. For and, more money. For and more, more money. Yeah. And now you've created a, a loop. You've created a, um, a, a channel to the world. The world says, oh, you can do this. I will give you money. And now you've become dependent on the money. And now you're locked in. You've inadvertently boxed yourself in without realizing you thought you were just taking opportunity. So one, it's okay to still do that, but you have to be willing to say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. And so what I encourage people to do who find themselves in that spot is to make the thing they want the world to pay them for and show the world that. And hopefully you'll find somebody out there who says, yeah, yeah, I want more of that. And then you start a new channel. And that is essentially what I do, right? I make the work that I want to make and I, I try to find an audience for it. And so we talked about motivation. You know, there was lots of doubt. Of course there was doubt. Imagine being 29 years old and basically nowhere, you know, you're living in a room in a flat. You're like, I was, didn't, I've never had a full-time job. I had a full-time job for like six months. Otherwise always just like piecemeal work. As little money, living off as little money as possible, always having time. You know, you're watching the people around you succeed, gain skills, get things like married, children, cars, houses, houses. cars. Yeah. I had a bicycle and I lived in a one room and I worked in a wood shop. You know, um, not that there was anything wrong with it, but I, of course, I had aspirations. And, you know, if people think that there wasn't doubt during then, 
then then they're wrong. Like the 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 doubt was palpable. But you've talked about that you don't really sketch that right. you 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 make drawings. And so your pen hits the paper and you start your drawing and then that becomes the final thing. So again, I don't know if this is a question or a statement, but did that did that evolve? Was that always your philosophy? Did is that just the way the work comes? I mean, it, evolution, of course. I mean, the people ask me, you know, how how long did it take to do this drawing, X drawing, or whatever? Yeah. And and you know that specific drawing might have uh, literally taken me eight hours to make, let's say. But <laughs> to some extent, it took me forty five years to get to the place where right it took me eight hours to make that because I wasn't I haven't always been drawing in this way. And even when I came upon this style and it started coming together, which was uh, around 2003, if you look at those drawings, they're rudimentary compared to my current drawings, although they have all the hallmarks of what evolved. And, um, and even the marks that I was making, which were new for me in 2003, were the result of all the marks I had been making and assessing. I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting story. So I had a professor... My freshman year, second semester of my freshman year, a drawing professor who tried to get me kicked out of art school. Wow. Because um, she was a visiting professor from Germany and we had such different points of view. It was really when I was, that's when I understood that, uh, that storytelling and drawing were equally important to me. Up until then, I always thought, oh, I, I'm a painter and I just, I don't know, I didn't even think about the fact that I was writing stories. I just did them. Like, but I was always such like the artist first that it had never occurred to me that I was both um, because I wasn't aware yet. Right. Yeah. Um, and then and I, I think st- when we're younger, we also want to maybe identify as one thing or we want to just say, this is what this is who I am. This is what I am. Right. Because that's easy. It's clean. Exactly. That's black and white. Right. Right. Exactly. That's not the real world. Exactly. And yeah. so I was and here's the thing. I I entered Carnegie Mellon the last year of a traditional education in the beginning of a postmodern education, which I think is really perfect for me. And one could argue how much was that my natural inclination versus how much did that shape me? But, you know, I am a process-oriented person. I am, I'm a thoughtful person. I, I don't say that self-compliment. I just mean that um, it is important for me to work through ideas and to think and to analyze. And I, that is my nature. But I think that that environment was a perfect mix because, but what it was is there was a lot of conflict within that environment uh, in terms of the department, because you had the old guard who were very much about traditional craft making, and then you had the new guard who didn't care about craft one bit and only cared about ideas. And the, there was a very thin layer where the twain met. And um, I began to embrace that. And so the even even within the postmodern world, though, there was really no place for somebody who wanted to draw pictures and tell stories. I was relegated, oh, you're an illustrator. But I'm not an illustrator. That's not how I work. It's not how I think. I'm not, I don't want to do commercial work. Uh, oh, you want to make books? Oh, well, then you're just in commercial because they don't know where to put it. Right. So even in this encompassing uh, intellectual realm, there was no place for it. And so the best word that I had was, well, I must be a cartoonist mm-hmm. because what? who else writes and draws? And so I really started going down that path, uh, which was a big change from the like traditional drawing that I was doing. You know, I started studying the figure when I was 15. I was take, taking college classes when I was a junior in high school. Yeah. I was so, curious about that. Yeah. Cause it, I was wondering if you had more of this kind of fine art vision of your yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I was, I was doing, uh, 
you know, starting in middle school, I was actually doing extracurricular uh, art art classes. But you know, as a junior, I was actually taking college classes, uh, studying life model, you know, learning. And um, so by the time I was even a freshman, I had been doing two years of college work. Uh, so by that point, you know, I'm developing, and then I took this dramatic shift into comics. And, uh, really, and do you think that happened because this this lack of understanding for what you wanted to absolutely there was nothing there was I was going to all these art people and um, they weren't showing me anything that echoed with what I what I was putting together the components I was putting together and so I was looking out in the world for what inspired me and that's when I discovered the underground cartoonists of the sixties and seventies from San Francisco and then in the eighties from New York. And um, it's actually one of the reasons why I came to San Francisco, because to me, this is where the, the U.S. comics revolution happened. Who were some of those artists that... that... Like uh, Robert Crumb. Yep. Um, uh, uh, well, Art Spiegelman in New York. Sure. But here, uh, you know, Crumb, you had... Uh, uh, God, why am I forgetting all these names? It feels like <laughs> Trina Robbins, who uh, I've come to know. Like, I used to live a couple blocks from Trina. Um, Spain Rodriguez. Uh, uh uh, th- there's so many people and I'm feeling terrible that I yeah, can't yeah. count them all. Don't, don't but um, I found them. And then I, then I discovered the, uh, the, the sort of four artists uh, drawn and quarterly artists from uh, Toronto. And they were sort of the, they were making new work. We're talking early nineties, um, Chester Brown, Joe, Matt, Seth. Um, um, and, and, and there are others too. Uh, but so I found, Oh, here's, 20 years ago, there was this thing, 30 years ago, here's this thing that happened. And here's the contemporary version. And we're not talking, like, I never read mainstream comics. I never yeah. read Marvel or DC. Like, I'd, yeah. I'd never cared for superheroes. I was a newspaper comic cartoon reader and a single panel cartoon reader feverishly. <laughs> like, there was a joke from as little as, for as long as I can remember, I would walk into a family member's house and just, where's the newspaper? Where's the comics page? And I would read every one. When you were a kid? When I was a kid, for as long as I can remember. Wow. I used to collect books of single panel cartoons. Um, I just, I loved them. <laughs> and, and I began to remember that. And I was like, oh, this was, been, this was my love. Newspaper comics and single panels. And then I discovered these alternative comics people. And they were speaking frankly about their lives. They were doing autobiographical work. And that's why I began with Autobio because I had, and they were talking about all the things that you didn't talk about. Right, right. You know, they were honest and they were open and they were willing to lay themselves bare. And that was everything I wanted to do. I wanted to express myself in words and pictures. So I started making work like that. And this uh, second semester, she was, <laughs> she was a postmodern drawing teacher. You know, it was about like abstract drawing, it was more concept. And here I was giving what she thought was this really uh, base right, sort right. of, uh, you know, like it wasn't art. And she went on a tirade and tried to have me thrown out. And luckily, uh, the head of our department was just awesome. Her name was Mary Schmidt. And Mary and I were friends the entire four years I was there. And I remember going into her office that summer because she called me up and said, hey, you know, this happened. And we just talked for an afternoon. And she's like, don't worry about it. <laughs> and just ignored the whole thing. And and um, I mean... The, the woman failed me and, wow. and Mary just changed the grade to, you know, because she's just like understood. Mary always understood the creative process. Yeah. You know? And I think that she understood that I cared and I was going somewhere and she didn't look at the minuscule moment. Oh, this one person says this about you. She didn't value the authority over 
the student. And it's not to say she validated the student, but she assessed. Right. And I will forever thank her for that because she basically said, you're fine. Just keep going. And I did, you know, and I just kept developing it. I don't know why I went off on that story. Well, no, I think it's really interesting that you hit an actual wall with a person who wanted to stop you from making the kind of work that you you felt drawn to. And luckily, there was someone in your life who kept that door open. And when you needed it, you know, we talked about permission and kind of giving yourself that permission. But when you needed it, when you were in school, you got that permission and you cut that door to, to stay open, ultimately to lead to to making the kind of work that you that you make today. I mean, I think we started talking about it, just talking about kind of your process and how you, you know, how, how you, um, how you kind of put pen to paper and that it, it, it wasn't always that way. It started out right. a lot more basic and, right. and that the, you're it, right. You asked me about the process of yeah, sketching, but right. I, but I did want to hear about, about college. And I think that's wonderful <laughs> to, uh, to understand because I wanted to learn about the transition between fine art to more of the comic world. And you just really explained it beautifully. Yeah. Thank you. I, you know, what I think it's interesting is, you know, I, I went off on this like sort of story and this process concept as opposed to explaining the difference between sketching and drawing. <laughs> but that's because that is the answer to me. To me, the, the craft side of like, what's the difference between these two is what we learn in a studio class. So as I'm drawing, um, I don't like to redraw something because I have an obsessive tendency and I want to fix or perfect. And what I have learned about my own work is that that basically wrings the life right, out right. of my drawings. Right. And so I've had to learn how to do it first. First off, it's basically like improv. Um, I really, I very much see drawing as a performance. And the best way I can describe it is when you go to be at the symphony or, you know, a, a, you know, a concert of any sort and the musicians walk out on stage, do you ever hold your breath and go, what if they screw up? <laughs> no, no. Someone's up there performing a solo. Uh, you go to a jazz show and somebody's just going off and, and they've just, they're nailing it. Right. And you know, they've probably played a version of that before, but maybe they found the sweet spot. You just feel psyched. You're up there in a sweet spot. Maybe they go in the wrong place, but they know enough how to recover that's what a performer does. It's not all just canned rehearsing the same thing over and over. No, they're going out and they're playing for you and you're experiencing them producing in the moment, literally in the moment. And they have all the years of experience leading up to that to be as good as they are. And we're only ever as good as we are in the moment. And if we're continuing to progress, we're going to be better, 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 better. Drawing for me is the same way. I'm standing there. I go to an environment. I look, I make choices. I begin to work. And that performance element keeps me awake and attuned and I'm present and my marks have to be in the moment and they have to be alive. And I think that's part of what the, the viewer is actually responding to. And you walk around with a, a notebook all the time and I, I was reading about your process and it kind of reminded me of almost like the stand-up comics I know who are constantly, you know, scribbling down ideas, ideas, right. ideas, mm -hmm. and they're perfecting and all of that. So, so you'll be out at a dinner and you'll, you'll grab your notebook and you'll, you'll write down something. Absolutely. So capture some kind of inspiration. It's always there with you. Always. I, I mean, I literally carry it around the house and I don't think about it. It's just like in my hand or in my pocket. And, you know, I go in the living room and I just like, then I set it down. I go into the kitchen and I set it down. And my book is always, it's just a small notebook with a pen. And, and uh, 
how do you how do you go back? How do you how do you kind of catalog or go back and pick out the right ideas? Actually, you know, it's really funny. So I'm going to grab my bag. Yeah. What I'm doing after I leave you today, because I'm I'm started a new book, and um, I have. I brought these notebooks. So what I'm awesome. showing him here is a stack of maybe 15 notebooks from the past year that um, I'm going to go. I'm going to spend the afternoon going through for this specific because I've been making notes for the past year on this project. And there's one aspect of it that I'm working on that I want to go in and find the notes about. I'll go through and I'll assess some of those notes. I'll decide which ones I want to use, call them together, sort of make a new master document of those, and then I can begin to say, well, which ones do I want to use, which are working, and then I can continue to work on that aspect of the story. And is it all handwritten, those master yeah. documents that oh, you no, pull from? I'll you, use a computer you... now. Okay, so, I'll go so you can search it. And I'll and enter. Everything. And um, so okay, since we're recording, we don't have visuals. I'm going yeah. to explain this. So what yeah. we're looking at are these, uh, they're like three and a half by five inch notebooks, moleskins. Um, fit perfectly soft, in kind of like a back soft pocket. cover, yeah, yeah, they fit into a back pocket. Um, I number them, I date them, so I sign in and out so that I can always know which, where they where they fall, right, with the sequence. On the front cover, I keep a list of all the projects that, I, that are in here. And so each project, I have a code. It's just like, a, you know, for Angels, I just, an A with a circle around it. Yep. And so what that means is, like, let's say when I was working on Angels, and then there'd always be a subsetting. So the main character's name is Emmett. Let's say I was working on... Emmett and his backstory as an artist. So I would put an A with a circle around it, then uh, Emmett slash backstory. And so when I'm going through the book, it's not that I'm just looking for Angel's notes. Oh, Angel's Emmett backstory notes. Boom. Okay, I can read that one because otherwise I'm reading every page of every notebook. And with if you're working on five different projects, the mind goes all over the place. Sure. I don't want to think about those other four. Right. I don't even want to think about the other aspects of the book right. that I'm right. working on. I just want to think about Emmett and his backstory right now. So I'm just looking for those notes. And that system of note-taking has developed over 25 years of figuring out how do I note-take, and not just how do I take notes, but how do I reference them and how do I turn my notes into finished ideas. Right. So then I can rewind. So now when I make a note today, I can begin with all those categorizations that that can then tell me exactly what is where. And then on the covers, I put anytime I start a new project, now I know what projects are in these books. And when I'm done and I go through and I assess all the notes, then I can cross it out and make a note and say, by this date, all of these notes have been called. So the first thing I'll do when I look through these notebooks is see which of these even have notes for the project I'm right, working on right. and which of them have already been assessed. Hey, guys, I want to tell you about a little something you can do to help the podcast reach even more listeners. It's super simple and should only take maybe a few minutes of your time. And that's by leaving a review on iTunes. The more reviews on iTunes, maybe you want to leave a five-star review. Maybe you want to say a little something nice in the comments. The more reviews that are up on iTunes, the more exposure people will have to the show. iTunes will bring it up in their rankings and people will discover it and the world will be a better place, right? So please check it out. Go to iTunes and leave a review. Thanks so much, guys. And let's get back to the show. So we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, maybe to put it simply, what advice would you give to artists who are either trying to have, trying to find that breakthrough or they're trying to make, make their own kind of like you did? Uh, and, you know, one of the questions you had written to me, you said is if I could go back 
Yes. And and tell something to myself. And I was glad I read it because um, it it, a a phrase immediately jumped to mind and I just wrote it down for myself. Yeah. And so the question was... And I wrote it on the back of my new notebook. (laughs) That's awesome. Because I, I want to always remember that because I think that's a really brilliant question because it's not just what I needed to hear back then. It's what I still need to hear today. And right. It's, and the, yeah, the question was, yeah, if you could go back in time and and talk to yourself, kind of now seeing this success through the other side, yeah, what would you say? It's okay. You'll get there. And that is the same thing I would tell anybody who is trying to make their own work. The caveat, of course, is if they are continuing to push. Because that's in this this line of it's okay, you'll get there is in response to the fear and frustration, the doubt and, and, and friction that comes from trying to carve out your own in the world rather than follow somebody else's path. And, um, I always believed that I would get there. I had to, right. But I had to also believe that I might die trying, be it at 20, 30, 40, 80. I was like, it might not happen until I'm 70 years old. Am I willing to do that? And while it was terrifying, the thought of going through my entire life, uh, not, not feeling the feedback that I wanted or not, you know, because let's be clear, part of success is having others tell you that it's working. And this comes back to our earlier conversation of being able to differentiate being told the work is good versus being told you are great. There's a big difference there. Yeah. You know? I feel good if other people think the work is good. There's the in-between of like sort of fame, celebrity, and ego that one really has to work to set aside. I'm not beyond ego. Certainly not. You know, um, it'd be egotistical to think that was. But uh, that doesn't, you know, and and it doesn't mean that I don't succumb to it. But um, I do have to keep it in check and say what really matters is that's, being told I'm great is a result of what I'm actually trying to achieve, which is that the work is good enough for somebody else. I think that just fits into the whole idea of treating it like a job and knowing what pieces need to be done when. Yeah. And can I ask you, we, we talked a lot about Close Enough for the Angels, but just if you can for listeners, what is the, what's the story? Because I know it's a, there's a mystery. There's, I mean, there's a lot there, both in words and pictures. Just, just tell us about the story. Yeah. So the story is Emmett Hopper was a one-hit wonder two times over. Okay. Uh, you know, it's always very dangerous as a writer to write, to make a story about a writer. <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, as an artist and a writer to make a story about an artist and a writer. But I wanted to do something new with the illustrated book form. And I felt that the illustrated book has fallen out of favor because it's not really a form that's working for people. Uh, the, the images are in my mind, tend to be redundant in an illustrated book. For example, let's say we're reading a chapter about two people at a Paris cafe during sunset. Right, of course, that's going to be the image. And we turn the picture and there's two people holding hands with the Eiffel Tower in the background and the sunset. That has stolen from the reader's imagination. The prose can do that. That's what's beautiful about prose. So then if we want to have images, what should the images do? So now that's the conceptual element. And so I began there and I thought, well, I need this. If I'm going to change this for readers, the way that they interact with story and pictures, then it needs to be as simple as possible. Well, my character made the drawings. <laughs> so Emmett became an artist. Now, I actually created Emmett Hopper in Oliver Coffee in 2005. 
and he occurred in a couple as like a fictional writer. That's awesome. That that came up in a couple. So in both books, you'll you'll find his name pop up. And so I, I kind of that. liked. You know, I'd already sort of pictured it. I knew what he looked like. There's a universe to the Paul Bandana work now. Exactly. Where and are so kind I of thought, yeah. well, then what is Emmett's life? And then I get to got to be a fiction writer. And, um, you know, this is a plot driven book. It's a character driven book. Uh, I like stories where things happen. And that's what's funny about Oliver Coffee. Oliver Coffee was like nothing happened. It was just <laughs> these weird moments. But if I was going to write a story. So Emmett is a failed artist and he's a failed writer. And it's the story of why he made this book. This is Emmett's book. <laughs> he wrote it and he drew it. It's told in first person from as Emmett speaking. Uh, we opened the first page and it's signed by him. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and I saw that. It kind of threw me off. Exactly. <laughs> and that's me sort of challenging the form a little bit. But it's also setting the reader up because in a good way, it, because you enter the book and you're like, wait, it's signed by this person. Why is it signed by him? <laughs> We're asking, these are the questions the reader should ask. That's the beginning of the mystery. Right. Right. So it's the first question. We're going to get this answered. And he tells us, and he begins to tell us his story. And he meets this woman, Julia, who they then marry, but she is, uh, she's a little bit younger and she is a force of nature and she is in control of her life. I really wanted to write a strong female character. Um, and Emmett is sort of, he lets life batter him around. And then he figures out what happens almost kind of too late. Whereas Julia wants to be ahead of everything and she makes her own mistakes because of that, but they come together and they're sort of the perfect yin and yang in that way. And, um, and she ends up going missing. That's like uh, the big hiking, mystery and she, at the center and of that it. throws his life back into another chaos. Yeah. But what happens, it uh, begins, he begins with him having a comeback, <laughs> a book that he wrote about his brother, who's a schizophrenic, um, 20 years before, uh, has become popular again. And he has since given up all creative ambition. Yeah. He bought a laundromat. He just wanted to have a happy life and provide a simple service. And for him, it was just, I can help people wash their clothes. Right, right. Simple as that. And it allowed him to sort of disconnect from life, but to get away from everything that, that all the anxiety and struggle of being a creative person that caused him a great deal of strife. And at the end of the day, he said, why do I want to do this? And so now it, we begin with, his publisher, old publisher is calling him and saying, Hey, your book is back. Right. He's You're getting sucked comeback. back in. Right. And he's like, I don't want this. Right. And, um, and, and it just sort of happens. And he, he goes into it, even though he's lying to himself that he's not. And, uh, and this is where he meets Julia and Julia sort of helps take him out of the hole that he has sequestered himself in. But then she, this terrible thing happens to her and throws his life into chaos. Right. And so we're hearing all these stories. There's a lot of backstory. There is a lot of mystery. There's a lot of, uh, humor, I think. Yeah. Um, I wrote it to be a page turner. The The chapters are short. They're structured in a way that just keeps bringing you in and in yeah. because that's the structure that I like. You know, I really tried to step on the other side of the aisle and say, well, what do, what do, what makes me happy? What do I really, you know, tantalizes me when I read a story? And, yeah. Um, and I love that it's a beautiful object too. I mean, you know, one of the beautiful things, and I worked in book publishing for, for years and years and then digital publishing. I mean, one of the th beautiful things about this book is that it's, it's this artifact. It's this really solid thing with beautiful imagery and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's got weight to it. Thank you. Yeah. So it's really, it's a story about an author and an artist not knowing how they interacted. But over time, that evolves 
into really understanding the nature of both those mediums and the subtleties in which they can affect each other. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to rewind to a really uh, a different time of your life. And I found it really interesting that you you talk about this place very lovingly in your in your bio still and in interviews that you were the first art intern at Mad Magazine. And I grew up Obviously, as a kid who loves art and and comedy, loving Mad Magazine and, uh, you know, showing it to all my friends and all of us cracking up. I want to hear about what that experience was like for you. And also, is there is there a part of it that kind of has stuck with you over all these years that you kind of like to like to reference it in in the way that you approach your work or your career? Absolutely. And some of the things I learned at Mad were integral in shaping my philosophical approach to my own work. Um, I want to talk about MAD as an, as an entity first because, you know, I'm saying I don't, I never read superhero right, comics. Right. I was interested in newspaper comics, single panel cartoons. But what drew me to MAD was the humor. Um, it was, it was like, an, unlike anything else, I loved that there were different artists and writers. Um, I loved that there were pairs. There were some people who just did their own work, but there were a lot of pairs, uh, which is, you know, very common in comics as well. But uh, or mainstream comics, but, and then it had a format. You could always, you know, the, the first, there was the letters page, but then there was the TV parody. Yeah. Um, I love and, the parodies. And at the end that. was the, the, the movie parody. And in between, you know, you'd have spy versus spy. You'd have the lighter side with Dave Berg. You'd have, um, uh, Oh my God, why am I spacing everybody's name? It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I mean, I, I know all of them like, and, <laughs> and the mad fold in, in the back. You oh know, yeah. And there were always the, uh, there was a certain, expectation that they set in terms of their structure but there was always variance and then you'd find new things and over time they would they would bring new people and other people would phase out but uh i really responded to that as the form and in college when i was looking for internships rather than go like galleries or museums or knew what because here's this fine art world but i'm interested in comics right. because the only thing i could identify with was cartoonist and where am i going to go for comics so I wrote to, or I called them up. This is, uh, what, 1992. Okay. I call up Mad Magazine. They're in New York. They're also in their prime, I feel like, then. I mean, it was pretty popular. I think that was right before Bill Gaines died. Okay. I think Gaines died in 92. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. It was right around the time, because when I was there, which was over the course of 93 and 94, yeah. uh, Bill was dead. Uh, his wife was running it, but she had just sold it to DC. Okay. Okay. Uh, but the crew was still in place, and I yeah. don't know how that's changed. Um, so I never got to meet Bill Gaines, which is which is sad for me. But I got to meet other people. I got to meet more Drucker, who was um, I, I was a huge fan of, and Morton and I hit it off uh, wonderfully. We had the same philosophies and approach, and uh, he and I would hang out to Society of Illustrators and get drunk and talk and. Um, you know, it's, you know, the older I get, I'm just like, wow, that's awesome that I had that experience. But so I call it Mad Magazine and I'm like, hey, do you have an internship program? And they said, yes. And they got my address and well, I don't know how long, a week or two later, I get this just envelope, like a letter. And inside is a quarter sheet of paper that looks like it has been re-photocopied a hundred times. Some of the letters are so blurred out because, you know, when you made a copy of a copy of a copy back then, oh yeah, it just distorted and so like some of the sentences, you're like, what does that say? But basically it was very simple. It said, take one idea and execute it from three different points of view. So I did three individual pages of comics about how awkward it is to go to the bathroom in a public setting. <laughs> one was from the point of view of a person excusing themselves from the table. 
The other was from being at the table when somebody else is trying to excuse themselves. And the third was being in the bathroom itself. Each one sort of had its own joke, different point of view, right? So I send it to them. Some time goes by and I get a call. And hey, it's Mad Magazine calling. No one has ever sent us drawings before. Huh. I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, this is a writing internship. I said, well, you should put that on your little quarter sheet of paper and you should probably retype it too. You know, all this is all good humor, right? Yeah, of course. But I'm blown away. What do you mean nobody's ever sent you drawings before? That's absurd. How yeah, is that even possible? Is drawings. How is that even possible? I still, to this day, don't even know how that's possible. Um, and they're like, well, we were really impressed by the fact that you sent this. And so it came down to you and one other guy, and we're giving it to the other guy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thanks for the call. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? And they're like, but we're creating an art internship because we've never had one before to say, oh, Mad Magazine, of course, they're, you know, loose. But you know, they worked their butts off and sometimes we'd be there to midnight, you know, and essentially I put an entire issue together with them and uh, I helped redesign some stuff. I I created new, uh, some new fonts. I created a new title page. I actually laid out a story. And one of the things that they taught me was that they saw themselves as an editorial magazine first. Everything was written first, even like, let's take Mort's uh, parodies. Uh, the story was completely written and then it was storyboarded with the text bubbles. And then he did the drawings to fit in around them. Now they would do some adjustments, of course, but the drawings essentially came last. And that was not how I thought. I mean, yes, you know, I had to know my story, but I would, I would often write as I went or whatever, or um, that idea of pacing and paneling. And while it was common in that world, it was new to me. 95% of all of her coffee strips always began with writing. Hmm. And then I did the drawing. And that really came out of what Mad taught me. And nobody had ever framed it that way before for me. One, because I think, you know, I was, I was taking writing class. I was studying poetry and playwriting. And, but that was writing. Right. And then I was studying art and drawing and painting. But the twain did not meet yeah. in that regard. So and no art teacher is really going to say, start your art project by writing. Yeah. And, and, and writing, you know, the, and the other side, sure. It didn't exist. Yeah. So I had to find it my own way. And, um, and I think putting the issue together with mad too, you know, I had been making little books for as long as I can remember, I'd been making zines. And so I knew the process of seeing something from concept to folding it and have, holding it in your hand. So to be able to make an issue with them, and, you know, the night that we finished it and sent it off to print, a bunch of bottles of wine opened. We all hung out. And I'm like, these guys have, and, and women, you know, men and women have been doing this together for years. And they're still celebrating and laughing with each issue. And how beautiful is that? Not just like, well, I'll get back to work. Next one. Right. And I, I got to be there and celebrate the issue that I had, uh, had participated in. And so they took me through an entire arc, an, ex- an experience. And they gave me that experience that I then took. And, and, uh, and, you know, embraced on my own. Yeah. Awesome story. And, uh, it's, it's so great to hear that, that the environment there was as much fun and, and also hardworking as, uh, I probably would have imagined it as a kid reading along. Paul, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you, Rob. I really yeah. appreciate it. It nice was really wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. That was my conversation with Paul Madonna. Paul, thank you so much for joining the show, for being so open 
about your path and what you learned and really sharing some of the hard times, some of the doubts that you've gone through and all the details about your process and your story so far. You guys should definitely check out Paul's work. Check out paulmadonna.com if you're not familiar with him. He's on all the social media, so be sure to follow along. And be sure to visit makingways.co. That's our website for the podcast where you're going to be able to see tons of show notes for Paul's episode and really kind of go beyond the episode and learn about a lot of the artists and experiences that he's had. Making Ways has been engineered by Jim Heffernan, and this week we're working with Aaron Stockhart. And we're going to be working with him on the episodes coming up. Our intro music is by The Sandworms. And we've also got music by Jim Heffernan in the mix. Subscribe to the Making Ways newsletter on our website. And follow us on all the social medias. We're going to have some really great events coming up in the months ahead. So be sure to sign up so you can learn about that first. Special thanks to our partner, General Assembly. Check out ga.co and you can sign up for a class or a workshop. And use the offer code MAKINGWAYS at checkout and you'll get 15% off. You can learn about so many different creative disciplines there. Whether you want to be a designer or a developer or learn about marketing, check out General Assembly. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next week. Music